Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. With a rosy fiscal update from the feds, this past week was supposed to change the channel from the ethical challenges facing the finance minister. But after a couple of days of good news, the spotlight is once again on the controversies around Bill Morneau's personal finances. We start off our show speaking with the finance minister himself about his economic update. Then we go to the McLean's panel, where our writers discuss Morneau's meeting with the Ethics Commissioner, his latest efforts to try and mute the conflict of interest criticisms that have been hounding him for a week, how this could impact the Liberals, and whether or not Morneau's job is at stake. Later in the show, we'll be bringing you the results of exclusive polling for McLean's, which takes stock of where the Liberals are succeeding and where they're failing midway through their mandate. Some of those results may actually surprise you. And we do end off our show taking a look at a sexual harassment controversy surrounding the new political hotspot in Ottawa. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. And I informed her that I'd like, uh, I'd like and my family would like to make sure that we donate any difference in value uh, that those shares have, have had since I came into office to charity. Uh, from my perspective, uh, working together with her, she confirmed that uh, she thought these actions were appropriate. Uh, that allowed me to work together with her immediately to uh, move forward. That's Finance Minister Bill Morneau as he spent yet another week trying to stamp out controversies around his personal finances. This week he had a private meeting with the Ethics Commissioner to discuss selling off all of his shares in his family company Morneau Chappelle and placing all of his assets in a blind trust. On top of that, he announced that a portion of the proceeds that he will get from selling off those shares, well, he's going to give that all to charity. Now, the finance minister is hoping this sort of dampens the criticisms that he's been facing about holding shares in his family business, not in a blind trust while still making decisions as the finance minister. Uh, but it doesn't seem that that's going away. The NDP wrote to the ethics commissioner who has also expressed concern over Bill C-27, a pension bill that the minister put forward that could potentially benefit the family business. Well, the NDP says this looks like a conflict of interest. It all comes on a week when the Liberals were actually hoping we'd all be focusing on something else, the fall fiscal update. And that economic statement actually had some great news in it. It shows that the economy is doing really well. There's a huge drop in the federal deficit, and the Liberals announced some new spending, like increasing the Canada child benefit two years earlier than originally planned and putting more money into a tax benefit for low-income workers. We will analyze all of the controversies around the finance minister a little bit later. But first, I was able to speak with the finance minister in the foyer of the House of Commons shortly after he tabled that fiscal update. Cormac, happy to be here. Okay, so this... Do I get to talk about it? <laughs> yes, you okay. get to talk about the fall right. fiscal update. So it shows that uh, we're improving when it comes to the deficit anyway. $28.5 billion was the projected deficit in the spring. Now it's down to $19.9 billion thanks to this roaring economy. But you chose to spend some of that money, not dedicate all of that extra windfall towards paying down the deficit. Why not? Well, first of all, I think it's important to know that that $8.5 billion 
better situation is net of anything we, we decide to do. Really, if I step back, the reason is we, a couple of years ago, we said to Canadians that we needed to deal with the challenges facing middle-class Canadians. We wanted to make investments in Canadian families. So when we increased the Canada Child Benefit and reduced middle-class taxes, that was about making sure that people could actually deal with the challenges they faced. And we had confidence that what that would do is it would improve our economy. So we're mid term. We've been here for two years and we've seen an incredible success story. We've seen that having confidence in Canadians has really paid dividends from an economic standpoint. It's helped the families. It's also helped our economy. So now that we're in a really good situation with the, an economy that's growing faster than any other G7 country, from our perspective, it's not the time to change the approach. We're saying that now's the time to make sure that we continue the positive results for Canadian families. So what we've done is we've done really three things. We've, we've made sure that that Canada Child Benefit can keep up with the cost of living. So Canadian families will have $200 more next year and $500 more than next year after that. And then we've said, we also want to help people who are struggling to get by, people in a low-income situation to, you know, to improve their situation because we know that not only will it be good for them, but it will improve our economy. They'll put the money back in. And finally, we've, we've gone through a discussion, as you know, for the last couple of months about taxes for small businesses. And we found a way to make sure that the system doesn't advantage only the wealthy few, but that we can reduce tax rates for small businesses down to 9% for all those small businesses that are working hard and helping our economy. So for us, a positive economic outcome means we can invest in Canadians and we know we can do that in a fiscally responsible way. You mentioned that you're halfway through your mandate and yet still there is no plan to get back to balance. You're still showing deficits over the next five years for this outlook. Why don't you have a plan yet to get back to balance? Well, we're not going to choose to use the frame of the previous government. What we've said is really important is that we're responsible financially. So that means reducing our debt as a function of the economy over time. What we've shown today, which is, which is I think you'll, you'll take a look at it and you'll see pretty, pretty incredible. We've actually shown that our debt as a function of our economy goes down over five years. So at the end of that five-year term, we are going to have a lower debt as a function of our economy than we've had since 1977. So the positive economic dividends that we've received by investing in Canadians are allowing us to keep investing in people, which I think is what people want us to do, and at the same time being fiscally responsible. We're not going to take the frame of the previous government they would have balanced the budget at all costs. They would have had to either raise taxes or lower spending on people. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep investing in people. We're actually lowering taxes on small businesses. And we're able to do that because it's creating the positive economy that we, that we know it would. And, and that's a really positive thing. And our goal is now to, to keep moving forward with that objective. How much longer are you willing to run deficits? When do you say now we need to get into surplus territory? Well, what I'm going to continue saying is fiscal responsibility is important. So it's absolutely the case that what you're going to keep asking me is how long are you going to keep investing in Canadians? And my answer will be we're going to keep investing in Canadians because we know that that challenge that middle-class Canadians are facing where they're struggling to get by, we know that that's a continuing challenge. We know that people working to get into the middle class, that's hard, so creating an advantage for them is important. We know we can do that while being fiscally responsible. Lowering the debt as a function of our overall size of our economy, 
that's really for us the most important demonstration of responsibility against our fiscal goals. There's nothing in this plan that really accounts for the risk if NAFTA talks fail. And if they do, that could seriously damage the Canadian economy. So why didn't you work in any sort of plan, given what we've heard out of the United States from the president, uh, to try and prepare for the eventuality that maybe NAFTA talks may fail? Well, what you just said isn't, isn't quite true, of course, because we've put in a cushion in each year of $3 billion. So, so what we've but done... NAFTA accounts for $2 billion of cross-border trade every day. $3 billion wouldn't account for that kind of serious economic issue. Well, uh, you're making a presumption that uh, we, we aren't going to get to an agreement with the United States, of course. We're working hard to get to an agreement with the United States. You're making an assumption that we aren't going to continue being next-door neighbours to the United States and have a strong trading relationship. We think we will. Of course we want to get to a better outcome for NAFTA. That's why we're working hard on that. But our, our forecasts do include an expectation of you know, uh, lower economic growth over time. We want to improve against that, of course, but that's what our forecasts show. Those forecasts are, of course, what's showing our good opportunity down the road. But we also did put in a cushion, uh, a cushion of $3 billion a year, which is actually pretty important. Remembering that that $3 billion is the government's uh, revenue. Uh, so when you think of the government's revenue, it's, it's more like about 15% of the overall economy. So uh, we think that that's the prudent way for us to plan for the future. And of course, we're going to remain very focused on NAFTA and consider how we can ensure that we get to a, you know, a positive a conclusion with Mexico and the United States. That'll be hard work. There are several goodies in this fall economic update, things that can, Canadians can look at and say, this will impact my life in some way. Is this enough to take the political heat off of you over these ethical questions around your personal finances or the controversies over your proposed tax reforms? We should delink those things. I mean, I, I'm, I came into public life because I wanted to have an impact. It's, it's really a privilege for me to be here. I worked with the Ethics Commissioner to make sure I had no conflicts of interest. I'm confident that that was actually the case. And now I've decided to go a step further because I want to make sure that there's no question around that. That's entirely distinct from our policy. We've been really talking since we got elected about how we can improve the situation for middle class Canadians. So the Canada Child Benefit, that's really important. What we're talking right now is about making sure it keeps up with inflation. Lowering the small business tax rate down to 9%, that was in our campaign platform. What we said was we wanted to do that as long as we could make sure our tax system didn't give advantages only to those who were already successful. So we worked through that. You're right, there was some important discussion along the way. We listened to Canadians and we got it right. So these things are, are sometimes hard. We're going to keep doing the hard work for Canadians. Now we've gotten to a situation where that hard work is paying off. Lower tax rates for small businesses, you know, benefits that are going to be improved for Canadians, and a fiscal track that's very positive, an economic situation that Canadians can say, we are resilient in the face of challenges like NAFTA or any other challenges that we might see. It's a really positive midterm update, and we've got a lot more to do. We'll keep working on it with Canadians. That was Finance Minister Bill Morneau discussing his fall fiscal update. And more on that last question, uh, it appears that this 
rosy economic statement was not enough to overshadow some of the ethical controversies around the finance minister. Still to come on the show, the McLean's panel will be discussing just that, as well as the impact that the controversies may have on the Liberals and Morneau's job. Then we get the results of an exclusive poll done from McLean's, which takes stock of where the Trudeau government is winning and failing at the midpoint of its mandate. All of that and more coming up on McLean's on the Hill. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we have some exclusive poll results of where the Prime Minister and his government are succeeding and failing halfway through the mandate. And we take a look at a sexual harassment controversy that has rocked a restaurant that's seen as a hotspot for politicians and power players in Ottawa. But first... It's now time for the McLean's panel, and I'm joined, as always, by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you both for very much for being here. Good to Hi. be here. Okay, so was there really any other story this week aside from Bill Morneau? Oh, boy. It, it seemed like uh, no matter what was happening, whether it's the fall economic update or the scandal around his ethics and his personal finances, uh, mm-hmm. he was the person who was always in the... Uh, headlines. So I guess the question is, you know, th- these fixes that he's been putting forward, he's going to sh- sell his shares in his company, he's putting it all in a blind trust. Then he finally had his meeting this week with the ethics commissioner. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to donate the profits that I had since 2015 to charity. Is this enough to fix it? Or is this just seem like it's just constant damage control here? You sort of answered your question, didn't yeah. you? Just <laughs> Paul, what do you think? I don't know. I, I, uh, uh, I had thought that the the uh, fall update uh, at the beginning of the week was impressive enough that it would have uh, helped these guys to turn the page, but uh, that turned out to be optimistic. Uh, um, the uh, you know announcement that he's going to uh, give all of his profits to charity simply begs the question: uh, What were you doing that you have to like that 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 a damage control at this level is required? You know. Why did you um, think you should interrupt? But maybe another way of thinking is that why did you think you should be keeping those profits in the first place? Like, yeah. If you need to now give them away, what made you think you yeah. were supposed to be able to keep them? You know. Like, and this is compounded by the extraordinary ability of the minister to never answer a direct question. Uh, it's 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 it was comical a year ago, and now it's become kind of sad that when asked about all these things, he pivots to his 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 um, high regard for the middle class. And the great success that the government is having, and uh, I don't, I, I don't think to this day he understands how, how, I mean, to use an old-fashioned word, how shifty that makes him sound. Mm. Um, uh, the fall update did have strong economic news. Uh, it, it gives the government, uh, puts the government in the position of being able to have its cake and eat it, it too. It's going to pay down the deficits more smartly than it had been doing. At the same time, as it gives away about fifteen billion dollars in direct tax benefits. Uh, to uh, voter markets that will be likely to notice and to and 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 to thank the liberals for it, hmm. um, and and yet uh, th- there's all these questions. Of what was the minister thinking? Running a company that manages pension funds, as he legislated on 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 pensions. I mean, that's I've I've almost never seen anything that blatantly ill-advised. Yeah, I think that's correct. And Paul, you've written earlier on some. <clears throat> 
elements of this that are maybe just a little more nuanced. I mean, the, the basic story is very straightforward and very, very damaging for the government. But there is this problem, right? If we think back to Andrew Scheer winning the Tory leadership, he talked about how he's an ordinary guy and this is a government of elitists who don't understand ordinary Canadians. And at the time, I have to say, I thought that was a low margin tact to be taking. I didn't really think that he was going to win on a strategy of telling people, hey, we understand ordinary Canadians, these guys do not. Now, though, you have to think that that, that tack has looks like it has traction. Like you've, yeah. you've got a situation where Pete Keynes are being reminded day after day about the fact that there are powerful, rich, possibly detached people running the government. I don't even think that's generally true. You know, I, I actually don't think it's true from the, from the attitude and the policy bent of the government, but it's impossible to get away from that impression now. And when you talk about did the damage control help or did it deepen the problem, when the damage control involves reminding people that you are so rich that it's okay with you to give away millions, some people estimate five million in profits that you've made, wow, you know, that's quite a message to be sending about who you are, you know. And so considering that the conservatives at least thought this was a vulnerability of these liberals, they've always thought that, I mean, some conservatives fixate on the fact that Justin Trudeau owns his dad's old Mercedes, you know. This now looks like they've added uh, a whole bunch of ingredients to the, to the messaging that the conservatives can, can spin on that, which is not where you want to be when you're fueling, you know, when, you're, when, when you're giving ammunition to your opponents. And the damage control goes beyond just politics. Morneau Chappelle has actually released a statement uh, trying to clarify misinformation, oh talking about how they severed ties with the minister mm. in 2015, how they w were never involved in consultations, their government contracts started under the previous government. So it's it's not just the political pressure that's on the government right now, but clearly a big player in business is getting kind of ticked off with, uh, yeah. with what's going on here because they're getting a bad name through all of this. So Paul, I think uh, when we discussed the midway point mandate for of the mandate for the government, you had mentioned that you didn't think that, uh, that Bill Morneau should hang around much longer as a finance minister. Anything changed at all over the last week with that point of view for you? No, although it's kind of it's the the, the interesting challenge for the government is finding an off ramp for the right. guy. I mean, I was on another panel uh, earlier today. Friday's my panel day, and uh, uh, I, I I was the question was has, has he delivered his last uh, federal budget? And I'm like, well, I, I mean, I would get him out before the next budget, but then that would look pretty bad to have the guy deliver the fall update and then vanish before the next budget. But what would be even worse would be to have him deliver the next federal budget and then get him out, out of cabinet. I mean, uh, Justin Trudeau, my, my hunch is that he expects to keep uh, Bill Morneau as his finance minister indefinitely, uh, but that's turning into more of a hope than a plan. If we're going to stay with Morneau here for another minute, Cormac, let me mention this. Way back when, at the time of the last budget, I wrote that I thought that Morneau was an interesting player behind the scenes, but a, not a very strong communicator, and it's obviously is not a strong communicator. And that might sound like a superficial kind of way of analyzing uh, a cabinet minister, but think about this. Jim Flaherty faced a, a real firestorm when he got rid of uh, labor income... I've lost front of the name of now. Income trust, the labor. Mm -hmm. What were those things called? Labor. When he taxed labor, income trusts. Yeah, income tax income trusts. Trust when they promised they wouldn't do it, and there were people at the time who said, "Flaherty's going to have to go. This is too damaging." But Flaherty had 
a quite compelling persona and quite an effective communication style. And I mention this parallel now because this is when, when you're facing this kind of uh, firestorm that uh, Morneau is facing, this is where it matters whether or not you can project a kind of confidence, uh, a sense of enjoying the job, which he's always had trouble projecting, a sense of, of, you know, all these things that matter in politics, whether they should or not, he really doesn't have it. And it's at this point that that is going, is going to hurt him the most because, because he needs it the most right now. Morneau comes off a little bit like that decade of failed liberal leaders that the party uh, suffered so badly through. He's a lot more reminiscent of a Michael Ignatieff or a mm-hmm. Stefan Dion, a guy who's not entirely sure what he's doing there, uh, as, as compared to a Justin Trudeau or a Jean Chrétien. That's so interesting. That's a great observation. I hadn't thought about that parallel. Could I say something, though, Cormac, about the... the, the here's on the upside from Morneau. The economy is bouncing along nicely, and... A lot of liberals are putting a lot of stock in that. They're saying if we, if the economy keeps performing the way it is right now, that'll that'll cover for a lot of bills. And the other part of the big picture puzzle, that's part of the big picture, is the economy itself. The other part is that they have a very aggressive agenda. They have a very activist agenda, and they'll be rolling stuff out over the next months and two years before they go to the polls. It's not like it's not like a government where. Well, like in some parts of the Christian era, where the finance minister was really the show in cabinet, there's a possibility of deflecting attention on other ministers. We're going to have an interesting turning point on immigration policy with respect to irregular refugees before Christmas. We're going to have a, a huge federal program on housing before Christmas. Those are just things coming right now. Next year, lots more big policy to put in the window. So it is possible that they'll take a tack of trying to downgrade the role of the finance minister from really next to the prime minister, the, the traditionally the most important king cabinet minister, to something less than that or something less high profile than that and try to weather this storm that way. Is there anything else you guys wanted to discuss? No, I think that's... <laughs> All, right, All right, then that's it. <laughs> that's the McLean's panel for this week. Thank you very much. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thanks, Cormac. Still to come on McLean's On the Hill, we will talk about a new hotspot restaurant for politicians and power players in Ottawa, which is now going through a sexual harassment controversy of its own. As well, we have exclusive poll results coming up after the break of how the Prime Minister and his government are doing halfway through their mandate. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we take a look at a sexual harassment controversy surrounding a hotspot for politicians in Ottawa. But first, as Justin Trudeau's government reaches the halfway point of the majority mandate that the Liberals won in 2015, a new exclusive poll from McLean's is probing where Trudeau is succeeding and where he's falling short. The online poll of more than a thousand Canadians conducted by Insights West from October 24th to October 26th gives us a chance to examine how the government is doing with two years left before the 2019 election. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes spoke with Mario Canseco, Insights West's Vice President of Public Affairs, on the state of Canadian public opinion on federal politics. Mario, thanks for being with McLean's on the Hill. Good of you to join us. It's my pleasure, John. You've got some interesting uh, numbers for us uh, from your from your latest uh, Insights West poll. Can I can I just ask the uh, 
the the very top line thing we 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 wonder especially at the sort of midpoint in the liberal mandate about what people are thinking about justin trudeau how, how do you think he's being perceived what's what are, what are the sort of big numbers on how justin trudeau is seen by canadians just now well, I think the biggest change, especially when we look at some of the way in which uh, other prime ministers have done when it comes to representing Canada internationally, mm. is that Justin Trudeau is way ahead of those numbers. We never saw anything like this for Stephen Harper. We never saw anything like this for Paul Martin or for Jan Kretchen, for that matter. The, the, the way in which Canadians are reacting to Trudeau internationally, partly it has to do with the fact that he's not particularly surrounded uh, at the G8 level, if you will, by politicians who are particularly popular. I mean, mm. Donald Trump is not liked in Canada, a uh, similar situation um, when it comes to uh, other world leaders at this stage. And, and you know, he's being uh, received very warmly in all of the countries that he's visiting. There's definitely an aura uh, of invincibility uh, when he's out representing Canada, but that's not necessarily the case when we're looking at some other things. So it's, it's kind of interesting to look at Canadians really judging the liberals harshly on issues such as the economy and jobs or, or other things, uh, but looking at Justin Trudeau as a person that they like uh, to be their own representative internationally. That's fascinating. And, and so it's, it's interesting that those, so when he appears in the international stage, sometimes we think it's, uh, well, you know, people in the media, people who are very interested, who are focusing on how he's perceived, but you're saying, no, Keynes in general are responding positively thinking, hey, he makes us look good when he's abroad somewhere. Well, it, it's very rare for a federal government uh, to be at a situation where two-thirds of Canadians agree with something they're doing. And this right. is what we see when we ask people, uh, have the Liberals and Justin Trudeau have done, have done a good job representing Canada internationally? And it's 67%. I mean, those are obscenely high numbers. Uh, there's very rarely governments that you know, get after the 50 or 55% mark when it comes to something like this. And, and mm -hmm. to have them at 67% shows that even people who won't vote Liberal because they don't like what they're doing on other things, are looking at him and saying, you know, I, I, I may disagree with some policies that he has, but I think he's doing a good job representing us. So interesting. So since we've talked a bit about this area where he's scoring high, uh, why don't we do look at the flip side? Where, where are the areas where the Liberals or Mr. Trudeau himself look more vulnerable? Well, there's definitely three issues uh, where they haven't connected very well. One of them is, uh, a high level of dissatisfaction with abandoning electoral reform. Uh, this is coming mostly from people who voted for the Liberals and were previously voters for the NDP and the Greens, or even people who voted for the NDP and the Greens who were expecting something different, maybe a, a system that would allow them to have more seats. And there's a little sense of dissatisfaction on that file. But the other two that are quite troubling is uh, the fact that even though he's been seen as a great representative for Canada, he hasn't really dealt uh, with the situation related to drug abuse and fentanyl uh, as uh, as well as most people wanted it to be. So that's the second lowest uh, mark for the Liberals as far as the decisions that they've taken. And the other one is spending pipeline projects. So people in Alberta dissatisfied with the decisions that were taken out east, people in BC dissatisfied with the decisions that were taken out west. It seems to be a file in which no matter what they do, it's impossible to please everybody. Only twenty. I'm looking at your numbers. Only twenty nine percent liking the government's efforts on dealing with pipeline projects. Mayor, does that cut both ways? Some people liking, thinking they're 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 not doing enough to get them approved. Others people thinking they're doing too much to get them approved. Is that how that you get to that number? It, or? It's it's definitely part of it because we do see it uh, as as a situation that is affecting. If you're a green voter, if you're an NDP voter, uh, you're more likely to say don't do anything. Uh, and if you're conservative, you're more likely to say you should be doing more. So. I think it's, it's definitely 
difficult at this stage. I mean, it, you have 52% of Canadians who are saying they're doing a bad job on this particular file. So it's one of the highest numbers, but it comes from everywhere. Uh, you have 77% uh, of conservative voters saying you should be doing more and 50% of, sorry, 60% of NDP voters saying you should be doing less. So no matter where he moves, it's going to be very difficult to get those numbers to flow. Um, the, the, it's interesting that we're we're talking about this at the midpoint of the government, but also at a point where there's a, still a relatively new conservative leader and a very new NDP leader. How, how do you see the opposition leaders figuring in the mix here? Well, now is the first opportunity we really have to test how things are going. And you know, we were very hesitant a year ago, a year and a half ago, to be asking voting questions because without a, a full-time leader for the other two parties, it, it seemed like a like a waste of time. And what's interesting to see here is there's not a lot of animosity towards either of them. The, the level of disapproval for Jagmeet Singh is 27%. The level of disapproval for Andrew Scheer is 35%. You still have a lot of undecideds on both, but they're definitely trying to connect and doing a good job connecting uh, with the basis of their two particular parties. So there's definitely room for growth. There's still many undecideds, uh, but it's a better situation. Mary, just so I make sure I understand that, you, you say those are relatively low disapproval numbers for the two uh, opposition leaders. And what that says to you is they have room for, for growth. They haven't alienated large swaths of the electorate, that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's definitely a chance. I mean, looking at Singh, for instance, he's more likely to be well known in Ontario. He served as an as a member of the Ontario Parliament, it's, it's, it's a very complex matter in that sense uh, for him to be well known in other areas. He did campaign with some NDP candidates provincially in BC, so he's, uh, he has a higher profile here than in other places. Uh, but there's definitely room for growth, especially if you're one of those voters who voted strategically in the last election. If you're more likely to be an NDP voter from the Leighton era who decided to vote liberal because you wanted to get rid of the Stephen Harper government, you might be more likely to come back into the fold if you have a leader like Singh. So interesting. Mario, you, you asked this interesting question about uh, which I would call kind of buyer's remorse question, where you asked people if they were <laughs> who had voted for liberals, were they were they glad that they voted that way or not? Uh, it's not a typical kind of question we see. How, how do you read the answers that you got there? Well, you have 18 percent of, of uh, voters in the 2015 federal election who say that they regret their vote. And what's interesting to That's me is in all parties, eh? right? In all parties. Yes. Yeah. But for liberal voters, it goes all the way to 24%. So you have essentially one out of four voters for the Liberal Party having buyer's remorse. And most of them are in Quebec. And I think that may have a little bit to do with the fact that they wanted to choose somebody who was different. And, and now, essentially, he's going to be the only Quebecer in the race because the leaders for the other parties are, are, are coming from, from other areas. So it's, it's quite intense to, to look at it from that standpoint and, and see that there's a lot of liberal voters within Quebec who might be having second thoughts about what they choose and, 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 and how they want to go on with this. Uh, it's also interesting to look at, at the fact that it's the middle-aged bracket that is more likely to be dissatisfied. Uh, the, the younger population, the 18 to 34s, tend to go for Greens or the NDP and are happy with their choices, and the over 55s tend to be more conservative. So it's essentially Generation X, which is saying, well, did we make the right choice here, or is this something that we need to correct in the next election? Hmm. That's, that is interesting. Um, it, there was so much interest after the last election in the the spike in younger voters turnout, you know, which was attributed to largely to Justin Trudeau making the election more interesting for young people. But uh, now we think about, you know, people who voted last time and what their maybe their first time voting. They were young voters and whether they'll a come to the polls again and, and whether they come to the polls in the same spirit they came last time or with some 
you know, a different attitude? Well, it's a very difficult situation because, you know, when, when you have a candidate who has been inspiring, and I think I can go back to the example of Barack Obama in the United States, 2008 election, they won in places where they didn't expect it. He, he wins the state of Indiana, which had gone Republican for many elections in a row. And now you have a situation where in, in, in the next election where, where he faced Mitt Romney, they lost a few of those states and he definitely had a, lo- a lower number of votes going his way. So it's going to be tougher for Trudeau to try to recreate that magic when he's been in government for four years. Still, I think if you're going to make the Obama comparison, I'm going to guess the people around Justin Trudeau would be happy to hear that made. He, Obama did win twice, right? And that's that's, that's what they <laughs> Absolutely. Had. That's the name of the game. Mary, is there anything we haven't touched on from the poll that you were eager to talk about? I'm thinking we've covered a lot of ground here. Well, looking at the voting numbers, it's interesting because we don't really see the Liberals way ahead. I mean, there are 35% uh, when you factor in decided voters. Conservatives are 33%. Each of them holding on to the base of support. I think there's a good news story for the NDP at 20% and climbing the charts with younger voters. So there's definitely a little bit of that competition for the millennial vote between the Liberals and the NDP, which we didn't really see in the final stages of the last election. I think a lot of people who are looking at the NDP as an option decided to choose Trudeau because they looked at it as the better vehicle to get a non-conservative government in Ottawa. Um, So there's definitely room for growth for all of these parties. It's ultimately a question of, of where you are going to be putting those resources and the kind of situation that you can have locally. I mean, the Liberals at 41% in BC is, is huge. They got 35% of the vote the last time around. So maybe those concerns about losing votes here because of the situation with uh, a pipelines um, are, are not happening as quickly as some people expected. Fascinating. American Sickle from uh, Insights West. Thanks a lot for talking to us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes in conversation with pollster Mario Canseco of Insights West. You can read more on the poll on the McLean's website. Coming up after the break, it's a restaurant known for its ability to attract politicians and powerful movers and shakers in Ottawa, but now it's facing a sexual harassment controversy. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. In the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal out of Hollywood, there has been a particular focus on sexual harassment in the workplace. And this week, Ottawa was not immune from that conversation, especially after a celebrity chef and co-founder of some popular restaurants in the city came forward and admitted that he had sexually harassed women. Now, there were some reporters asking questions about this in the days leading up to this fact, but a statement went out from Matthew Carmichael, who was a co-founder of restaurants like Riviera, Datsun, and El Camino, admitting he has sexually harassed women with inappropriate comments. And the statement goes on to say, that he's chosen to be in therapy for drug and alcohol rehabilitation since June of this year and is currently clean but has handed over the daily operations of his business to his management team. Now, the reason why this is of particular interest is because one of those three restaurants that Matthew Carmichael was involved in was Riviera. It, it has really become a political hotspot in Ottawa. And here to talk a little bit more about this 
is McLean's writer, Megan Campbell. Megan, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into why this restaurant is politically important, let's talk a little bit about this restaurant, Riviera. It sits on Spark Street, a very popular uh, pedestrian street in Ottawa, uh, but it's it's around some very important buildings. Sure. So you can certainly say some perhaps the most important building. So it's right across the street from the Prime Minister's office and just around the corner from Parliament Hill. So this pedestrian street, Spark Street, as you mentioned, is very popular in terms of people um, going straight from the hill or committee meetings around the hill to get lunch or to um, have a drink at the end of the night. And Riviera has emerged since its opening in uh, the summer of 2016 as the place to go. Yeah, and it's it's this beautiful old bank building that was converted to look like almost like a 20s or 30s style fancy restaurant. It, it is very classic. Yeah, in fact, what I was noticing was the shape of it. Really long, narrow, and these magnificently high ceilings. And I was thinking it's it's almost shaped like the House of Commons itself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like something out of a movie, really. But you can understand the appeal that it has for the powerful people in Ottawa. And of course, it has attracted many members of parliament. It's attracted many of the political elite and many just powerful business people and lobbyists who come uh, come to Ottawa or live here. Um so what, what about the political connections to this restaurant? So Sophie Gregoire Trudeau has been spotted there, you know, with her kids. And after the, uh, po- I guess, the post-budget party of the Liberal Party was held there as sort of a private function. And it's known to be a place where you could spot uh, ministers or other uh, parliamentarians and, and many, many of their staffers, many of the PMO uh, employees as well. The prime minister himself has, has been spotted there, not just his wife and kids. Yeah, and actually, he the prime minister is good friends with uh, the Veterans Affairs Minister Seamus O'Regan. Seamus O'Regan's husband was the general manager of uh, Riviera, and he announced his uh, resignation from that position on uh, Wednesday morning. Okay, so there are definitely a lot of links, which makes it, kind of awkward, especially for this government, uh, because they are tied to this restaurant. They have made it sort of their hangout place, and yet now it's being rocked by this sexual harassment controversy in the way that this guy that had connected himself to so many powerful people in Ottawa uh, was treating his staff, and yet the prime minister in this government has made it a point to try and speak out against any harassment in any form, especially sexual harassment. So where does that leave them? It leaves them in the middle of a dilemma, I would say. And in terms of some of the people that I talked with as well at the restaurant, you know, they're saying there's really two options. One woman was saying, um, you know, her, you know, the idea that she might cancel her reservation and stay home was a serious option in her mind. And the people that she was going to meet for lunch were immediately concerned as well about their destination of choice for the day. But 
her other option and the one that she ultimately went with was to go back to the restaurant to support the remaining staff, many of whom she knows quite well, the, the women in particular, make sure that they're doing okay and really confront this issue as it comes out of the shadow um, as opposed to the tempting option to really shy away from an institution that has a, a tainted reputation. And I, I will point out as well that uh, through the coverage of this controversy locally here in Ottawa, the Ottawa Citizen, the newspaper, uh, did speak with one of the people alleging this harassment, and they said that aside from this one person, it was a wonderful work environment uh, to be in. So uh, there is a, an added sort of conflict there where it seems to be more one bad apple rather than you know the whole bunch being bad, but at the same time, that bad apple was a very influential and powerful apple. Absolutely. And I think the uh, that it's worth noting um, the kind of atmosphere or the kind of feeling that you get when you're in there. It's certainly, as you described, quite uh, collegial, quite upbeat. And and unless you know they were hired actors or something it it really seems that there was that one bad apple syndrome going on now this this controversy around this one restaurant really does open up the larger conversation that we've had in the past in regards to sexual harassment in the world of politics while it didn't in this case involve a lot of any politicians in any way you know, we have had these issues on Parliament Hill. This has been a problem with politics. And as you said, it's sort of lifting the veil on on something that a lot of people had kept private and secret uh, for so long up until more recently when this is being put more and more in the spotlight. Yeah, absolutely. There seems to have been a real zero tolerance policy in in recent uh, years for sexual harassment and on I mean, within the government. And this is going to be, a, uh, as I sort of said, you know, a tempting moment to uh, disassociate from an institution that's been associated with that kind of behavior. But you know, it's um, it this this restaurant really is unique in Ottawa. You know, not just the physical space, like you said, of sort of walking into a 1920s or 30s uh, atmosphere, but in terms of the the quality of food, you know, it's been ranked among the top uh, restaurants by En Route magazine. And it's not just, uh, you know, Ottawa locals who have uh, sort of raved about it. So there's a sense that there aren't actually that many other options uh, for political staffers uh, to go to. And the thought is, is that it will it will continue. Now, the interesting thing about Ottawa culture is it seems that every party, or at least when I got to the Hill, and, and it kind of died off for a little while, but has started to come back, every party seemed to have their own sort of haunt, their own bar. And the government of the day uh, would like to visit a certain spot. But, uh, of course, you, you sometimes see those locations where there is bipartisan support, if you will, where you see people of other parties and Riviera was not just for, let's say, the government, the liberals. This was something that drew uh, people from uh, all over. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not even just po- uh, politicians by any means. I was speaking with somebody who was working in um, the 
construction or sort of the um, refurbishment of buildings in Canada, U.S., and Puerto Rico after floodings, you know, and somebody who was an insurance broker and a female Quebecois doctor who, you know, chose to continue eating there. Okay, Megan, we're going to have to end it there, but thank you so much for this. I I know we can find your piece on mcleans.ca on the issue and the sexual harassment controversy around Riviera Restaurant, uh, but also McLean's and our other Rogers properties have done a lot of work on the issue of sexual harassment uh, throughout the last number of years, whether it be in the military or uh, on Parliament Hill. You can check all of that out on mcleans.ca, Chatelaine, and our other publications. Well, that's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.